New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Many of us follow a path searching for meaning, for something bigger. A lot of us have been doing this for a very long time. We have the skills, we have the know-how, we are wise beyond our years and generous to a fault. We've attended a legion of trainings, workshops, and retreats. We have studied with teachers, masters, and gurus. We may even have become a teacher, master, or guru ourselves. With this level of dedication, you would think we would be happy. Mostly we are. Then there is that small vexing voice that keeps us craving what we don't have, desiring things to be different and hoping one day to arrive at some magical destination just on the other side of the horizon. We don't quite let ourselves rest in who we are or where we are. Instead, we continue to seek and search, and all the while, we wait. These are the words of our guest today, Kristen Muller, who has explored the topic of why we wait as our life speeds by. Kristen Muller was a self-help junkie, but when her home and all her belongings burned in a raging wildfire, her life took a huge turn she is a coach, speaker, workshop leader, author, and radio show host. She is the author of What Are We Waiting For? Learn How to Rise to the Occasion of Your Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we can release our pervasive human tendency to wait for life and look outside ourselves for answers with our guest, Kristen Muller. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Kristen, welcome. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. Well, let's start. I mentioned the fire, and this really changed your life. You were already researching and doing some work on the concept of waiting and why we wait in our lives and don't get on with our lives. How did the fire change that? Yeah, I'd been studying the the field of waiting, one might call it. Well, I'd been a waiter most of my life um, for just find, catching myself waiting in all areas, waiting to really live my dreams and go for things. And in 2008, I had, a, had an epiphany about 
about that, that I was waiting, and I was waiting at the time for Jack, and Jack is Jack Canfield, a best-selling author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, and uh, I had met him at a conference and started an email connection with him, and one day caught myself obsessively waiting for him to get back to me via email, and had this moment where I thought, what am I doing why am I waiting? And then why am I waiting for Jack? And it was like, waiting for Jack. I'm going to write a book called Waiting for Jack, all about why we wait in life. And so I threw myself into this study, interviewing people, looking at it in my own life, really considering this topic, reading other great masters of their exploration, coming up with all sorts of wonderful quotes about that and everything. And I got that book out in the world. But what happened was uh, a couple years later, in early early 2012, I had just had a new publisher, Viva Editions, uh, approached me and said, we love your book, we love what you're doing, and we'd actually love to have you do a rewrite of this book and kind of bring it up to date. And so I said, okay, great. And uh, it was just this kind of be this exploration um, and, and taking a deeper cut. But what happened was about three months after that, my house burned to the ground, like you said. And honestly, everything burned with it. My, now just describe where you were living at the time. We were living in uh, the Colorado, um, at, at southwest of Denver in the foothills um, near a little town called Conifer. So up in the mountains on 37 acres and backing to thousands of acres of open space. And the, the state of Colorado was doing a controlled burn and the controlled burn got out of control and came raging up our hill and destroyed 21 homes and killed three of my neighbors. So you, did you see that control burn from where you were? Yeah, the, the week prior, we had seen smoke and found out by researching online what was happening, found out it was in fact a controlled burn. So kind of checked it off the list of our worries and um, just watched it and watched it kind of die down a little bit. But over the weekend, we had the driest March on record in Colorado. We had high winds. And at some point during the weekend, we started seeing smoke again. But again, just thought it was okay because the state, of course, had it under control. And it wasn't until that Monday morning that then it started to puff up more and as the day went on, I just noticed the cloud getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And unfortunately, there was not a lot of good information online about what was happening or you know, not, I mean, not even just, we didn't get any calls, we didn't get any notices. So it was just neighbors kind of calling each other saying, what do you think we should do? I don't know. What do you think we should do? And finally, I left probably half an hour before my house was consumed. Wow. And you never, so there was no like evacuation notice, nobody, you just kind of all figured it out yourself. And Yeah, it was a massive breakdown in many systems. I mean, of course, starting with the fact the Forest Service did not properly manage the fire. They didn't monitor it on the third day when they were supposed to. And so by the time they went out on the fourth day, it had, it started blowing up. There was a breakdown in the fire department communication and then there was a breakdown in the 911, reverse 911 system. So none of us got calls. And unfortunately, I mean, sadly, devastatingly, three of my neighbors died thinking, and one had definitely called the 911 system and was told not to worry, crews are on the scene. And she ended up staying in her house. And I could see it coming up my hill, but some of my other neighbors where their houses were couldn't see it. 
So I, I just imagine that there was some anger that you needed to process after that. Oh, yeah. And I have to say that you know, two years plus later, um, most of my neighbors are still dealing with the state of Colorado, having to fight for the state to make it right. And so, yes, a lot of anger and then a lot of beauty of, of community coming together. We were a small group. We, we called ourselves the Forgotten Fire is in Colorado later that summer. There were some very big fires where a couple hundred homes were lost. And then the year after, more homes were lost. And we were the, you know, the, the tiny fire, but, but devastating and losing three lives. Um, but we came together as a community and supported each other and then actually changed legislation. That's amazing. So that so in working through that anger, you actually put it to use yes. to do something and make it make an effect. Yeah, and it, you know, kind of tying back into what you asked about my book. So it was just it was very similar in that just what you're saying, and I just kind of saw that parallel where initially what this book was to be was just basically a kind of a edited, cleaned up version of that first book. But after that fire, it could no longer be that. And it really, I almost let go of doing this book. I just had to truly soul search of was I, was I up for the job? And then also I could not any longer just have it be this kind of more surface level of why we wait in life. It had to be a much deeper, deeper cut into who we are and why we are the way we are. And and just I gave it my all. And and I think having this to focus on after the fire gave me a much needed creative outlet. So you didn't wait to have it all resolved. To, oh, I did to, not. So, well, you yeah. couldn't. I mean, it was no. part of part of your whole process. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because uh, you know I actually I finally came up with how I could do this because I turned to my writing right after the fire. I turned to blogging and I wrote over a hundred thousand words, which is a lot of words. And six days after the fire, I started writing. My whole blog is at walkingthroughfire.com, so you can follow from day six or so after throughout the whole thing. So that's where my energy was going into that writing and less into writing this book. And at one point, I finally realized how I could kind of bring the topic of waiting and my writing into one piece. And I, my publisher was so kind, they just kept extending my deadline and extending my deadline because I just was not, it, this was not about procrastination. <laughs> they knew that, you know, this is about someone who was truly committed, but having life be in the way. We were living in people's basements. We were living in a 1967 Airstream trailer. We were trying to figure out whether to build. We were dealing with the insurance claim. We were dealing with the claim against the state of Colorado. So finally, I turned in my my draft. I finally just got it done, turned it in. And I think this was in early, early February of uh, 2013. And she said, you know, I was kind of on pins and needles waiting to see what she would say about it. And she, she, she got back in touch with me and said, okay, it's great. However, you don't have an ending. It doesn't, it does, you just kind of stop. <laughs> and I realized at the time, I wasn't ready to pull it all together. I was not in a place where I could really pull it all together. And I was so resisting wrapping everything up in a neat little package, too, that I couldn't, I couldn't end it. And so it gave me this chance to re-explore and really look at from from bird's eye view, from reviewing the whole past, like what does it need? What do we need to know to wrap this whole concept together and then write a new ending? Wow, it's really beautiful. Okay. That is beautiful. And it, just in what you were just saying, it reminded me of a few ideas 
One is you mentioned that you were living in friends' basements and all of the, and this Airstream trailer and all of this, and the community came together. What can you say about what you learned about giving and receiving, especially the receiving part? Mm-hmm. Receiving, you know, it, it's so easy for people to give to others. You know, we're just so practiced at that. We have a hard time in general. People have a hard time receiving. Asking for things is even the next level of, you know, it's one thing if you receive something, but then having to go and ask for it. I mean, I'm visiting here and I have a friend who lives nearby and I found myself not wanting to ask, can I stay with you? You know, it just, right. this kind of thing, weird thing we do. For me, it's it's also um, when I'm feeling vulnerable mm-hmm. and you must have been feeling just tremendously vulnerable, it's hard to ask for something or to receive something. It's like I can only receive it when I'm really feeling strong and grounded and all of that, and then I can receive it. But when yeah. we're feeling devastated, it's so hard. It is hard. It really is. And the biggest gift you can give to yourself is to be willing to say, okay, I will let people help me because people will line up to help. And this is kind of, I have advice for the receivers and I have advice for the givers because after a tragedy, what happens is people pour out just offering, 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 offering. But it's it's almost too much in the beginning. You kind of got to like have a team leader <laughs> that can say, okay, you in two weeks, you in four weeks, you in six weeks. Because so many people right away were so well-meaning and it was beautiful, but we couldn't, we didn't even know what we wanted. We had no idea. And people wanted to give us stuff and we definitely didn't want stuff at that point. You know, so you kind of got to understand that there's a process that people will go through. And then unfortunately what happens after a certain point is then life goes on for those people too. And then it's easy to kind of forget about that the people are still dealing. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Kristen Muller, and she's the author of What Are You Waiting For? And if you want to know more about her work, go to her website, kristenmuller.com. And she spells her name K-R-I-S-T-E-N-M-O-E-L-L-E-R.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Kristen Muller, and by the way, she spells her name K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Muller, M-O-E-L-L-E-R, Kristen Muller, and she's the author of What Are You Waiting For? Learn How to Rise to the Occasion of Your Life. And we were just discussing and talking about that devastating fire 
that you experienced, uh, Kristen, and your husband. And what did you when when you saw it? You mentioned that that the house burned a half an hour after you left. What when you discovered? Okay, this is really happening. What is it that you grabbed hold of? What, what did you take you with know, you? Um, it's interesting to say discovered that it was really happening because truthfully, the denial was, you know, it just people go into shock in those kind of situations. And I was in shock. I was not really grasping that it truly was going to burn down. I mean, it was kind of like a fire drill, you know, from when we're kids, <laughs> the school fire drill. Um, so I was wandering from room to room, trying to think of what to take. And, you know, it's funny, I discovered later on in my files in my computer that I had a things to take in a wildfire file, but <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, of course, think in that moment to look at that. Um, so I wandered room from room to room and Picked things. I, of course, first my animals, you know, get them in the car. And then I was packing. And your animals were consisted I have of? Two dogs, Roscoe and Tigger, who are both Rhodesian Ridgebacks, and a ornery, big, huge tabby cat named Bill, who had to go in the crate and be shoved in the car. And so, for, for, of course, I got them first, and then my computers. And then I was leaving to go on a business trip the next day. I was actually flying out to California to do a speaking engagement. So I had started packing. That day. So I had a suitcase almost all the way full of clothes. So I just, I shut that and took that. And, and again, fortunately, I really, I think that I probably owe my life to this wonderful woman named Jolene, a friend of mine who had come over that day to help me get ready for this trip. And um, I was, cause I had back to back calls and um, I, uh, she really kept my head on straight. She, I would have just kind of kept wandering from room to room and she, um, she started going and well, she first said, we need to go. And I said, no, let's not go. I don't, I didn't want to mess up my house, (laughs) you know? And she said, okay, you just, you just go here and do this. And she was kind of giving me instructions and she started going room to room and grabbing pictures. She grabbed this big, huge cooler we had and started pulling pictures, photographs, little framed photographs. And I credit her. I had the, this whole big cooler full of photographs. And then another friend of ours came because um, I had asked him to come over. I said, I think we should probably cut down a couple trees. And by the time he got there, he said, we're not, we're not doing that. We're getting out of here. But so I had him and my friend Jolene and another friend, Sean, come. And they just they said, we're, we're out. And they, we had one other vehicle that um, they were able to drive out. Your and, husband wasn't there no, at the he time? Was, he was on business. And I had uh-huh. been trying to reach him all day, and he was in meetings, and he wasn't getting my calls. Right. And finally, I was keeping it together, and I was really in just, just okay, you know, looking around, kind of manically looking around. And um, when he called, I remember, I'll never forget it, I was walking down the stairs to our basement, and um, he called, and I just... I just fell down. I mean, I just was hysterical sobbing. I could barely even speak to him. And I just handed the phone to my friend Greg and said, you tell Greg what you want. And he had a few other things that I got, but he really didn't get very much because he wasn't there. I got his I got his two slippers <laughs> and I got his <laughs> army jacket that he'd had since he was a teenager. So I was able to get that. And and then Greg had, oh, and we had this, I had a jewelry box full of, beautiful jewelry that belonged to my stepfather's late wife. And I would not have thought of that box. It was upstairs in a little safe. And David told Greg, he said, get, get her to get the jewelry box. And so I got that. And So it was almost, 
I think of it like a grace that these angels were there. It was amazing that you were not alone. And I just, I I can feel how grateful and and we're both tearing up, you know, to think of those people. They were like angels helping. Anne Apple, who was by herself, Scott Apple's wife. Scott Apple was on a business trip in in Seattle area too, where my husband was. And Scott had talked to Anne a few times that day and he was trying to get home and Anne was by herself. And Anne died. Oh, oh, devastating, devastating. So hard, so hard. So, as you say, you were in shock, and now you're out. You're out of the fire danger. You've driven away, and uh, it's just it, it is so shocking to just have your life just so transformed mm-hmm. in a, in a moment in, in a second. Yeah. yeah. So then you that's when you started writing and writing mm-hmm. and, and almost writing as therapy, yes. that all those blogs writing that you did. Therapeutic writing, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's talk a bit about waiting and um what are some of the the bad things about waiting? I mean, what, what do they keep us from from doing? What what why do we wait, Kristen? Well well, to answer the first question of the, you know, what it keeps us from doing is it keeps us from thriving. You know, it keeps us from truly living and really, we're, we're just put off living. And that's really what it is, you know, and why do we do it? It's, you know, it's so ingrained in us, this kind of, there's so many levels. And I look at this, what I explore in this book too, is not just this surface levels of we wait to have enough money, we wait till the timing feels right, we wait till we're smart enough, you know, we wait till we're old enough, we wait till we're, you know, now we're too old and, you know, like all those things. (laughs) We wait for all these kind of, we wait for the right relationship, you know, but what I explore even more deeply in this book is kind of the internal ways we wait because we, we're really waiting to feel a sense of certainty and we're waiting to be perfect. And once we're perfect, once we have it all figured out, then we can take action you know, once we have our ducks in a row, then we can we can take action. And you know, I think it's just the sad thing that so many people do because we're we're not gonna we're not gonna get there ever. There's not gonna be that moment of absolute. Well, for most of us, I, I love it when I hear someone is just so certain of something. Like something arrives in their life, and it's just like, okay, this is it. You know, I mean, when I had the epiphany to write my first book. Prior to that, literally the minute before, the 30 seconds leading up to my epiphany, I was not a writer. And then I had the epiphany and then it was, oh, now wait a minute, I have a book idea, now I've got to be a writer. But I, it wasn't like snapping my fingers and just ease and grace. It was brutally difficult, challenging moments and days and questioning and wondering, but it was such a... I fully committed to that. I absolutely, I gave my word. I scheduled it. I hired a coach. I told everybody I was doing it. I became so fully 100% in, threw my hat over the fence, you know, so there was no going back. Although I say that, there's always going back. And that's what happens. People commit to something, say, yes, this sounds like a great idea. And then, you know, life happens and you start to, nah. Eh, and then it gets <laughs> gets put on the back burner. Yeah. But what I hear you saying is that you made a commitment, and that's one of the things that you really talk about in the book. You, you, when when our 
energy or enthusiasm starts to lag, you talk about commitment. And when you actually tell another, it's, it makes it even more of a commitment because we can we can kind of, if we just say it to ourselves, oh, I'm going to be a writer, I'm a writer, but we don't tell anybody, then we can kind of, well, let that go. No, I, nobody knows what yeah. that was. Yeah, I mean, I think speaking it out into the world and really having people, knowing where it's being received too, because it's also speaking it into people's listening that are going to support you in that, not just the people that can go like, well, yeah, great. That's great. Good idea. <laughs> or I'm, yeah, I'm going to write a book too. Haha. <laughs> you know, right, right. it's actually finding a community of people, cultivating that, finding those people in your life that know who you really are and what you're really capable of. And if you don't have those people, go get go them. Get them. You know? I, I call that uh, finding people who support you in your fullness. Mm -hmm. Love who that. Really, you know, really, really see, as you said, see you and, and know that this is something that really matters. Yeah. I'd like to say something I mentioned in the introduction that at one point you were a real self-help junkie. So uh, say something about that, mm. being on that self-help treadmill right that that keeps us actually can keep us from from manifesting let's say you are now really a, truly an accomplished writer it wasn't easy no i mean you had to walk up the mountain of that it wasn't like i'm going to be a writer and then suddenly it all you know the sky opens and you're touched by god and you are a writer but or the magic wand of the fairy comes down but that's what we wait for. <laughs> <laughs> right. So say something about that treadmill of self-help. Yeah. So I realized it was, you know, another kind of more of a gradual epiphany. But after all the, you know, I got I got into this field when I was 23 years old in 1989 when I was recovering from addictions and went to my second rehab at that point and really found myself and found my life. I mean, I'm forever grateful to have found that path. And, and I also found something I really cared about. It was suddenly like, okay, recovery is possible. Something else is possible other than this black hole of despair that I've been living in of addiction and started to get my bearings in that world and was also then surrounded in treatment in particular by therapists and people who were, had given their lives to helping people. So I found a call, my calling. I became, I went back to school, got a master's degree, became a therapist and always taking courses, always taking workshops, always reading books. And it was all brand new. I mean, it was so exciting. It was like, you know, fill my myself up with this beautiful, amazing stuff of what's possible for humanity. But at some point along the way, and it was right around the time, I think when I started to really see when I was writing my first book, that kind of, wait a minute, I'm still, I'm looking outside myself for, for someone else to give me that answer. I'm looking to self-help. I'm looking to this next course, this next book, this next teacher. They have the answer. I don't have the answer. Or maybe, okay, that was really good, that course. I felt better after doing it, but now I'm still dealing with whatever, you know, I'm still dealing with this issue. So since this issue is still there, maybe that didn't really work. So I'll try the next thing. And then someone else will say, oh, this is fantastic. You should try this course. And oh my gosh, I got this breakthrough. Oh, well, that sounds good. You know, as it started oh, to I be know, the, I know. this, that, this, that. So my addiction kind of transferred into the world of self-help. And here's the thing. I love the world of self-help because it's clearly where I have been birthed from. However, this is my major complaint 
about the world of self-help is that we kind of feed this because it's always everybody's coming up with the next new thing. This this technique, that technique, try this, do that, do this. And then what it, what the problem is, is that we forget that it's okay to be human and to grapple and to, you know, like when I arrived here and fell down the stairs, you know, <laughs> so and I fall down and I want to cry and I want to give up and I bruise my knee and, and I start to think I'm a failure, you know, because I can't even walk. Why am I falling? You know? Yeah. Right. And so it's just, you know, that we're human and we're messy humans sometimes. And so letting ourselves be and not having to fix that. I'm here with Kristen Muller, and she is the author of What Are You Waiting For? Learn How to Rise to the Occasion of Your Life. And if you want to know more about her work, go to our website, kristenmuller.com, spells K-R-I-S-T-E-N-M-O-E-L-L-E-R.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Kristen Muller, and we're talking about why we wait. When you were describing like the self-help treadmill and how how we there is that other piece of information we need or learning we need to take in before we actually start our own life purpose, it's it's like we want to be fully cooked. <laughs> Or we think there's some part of us that believes that, well, until the we're fully cooked, we can't really start to manifest. But you're yeah. saying that, no, go, go, go ahead, go for it, go for it, because you'll never feel that fully cookedness. Is right. that what exactly? I- and yes, I mean that's so perfectly said. And I just got it. Hearing you say it just gave me even more. Just kind of that, yes, <laughs> you know, because we're never going to be fully cooked. You know, I mean, enlightenment, people have it as a checkbox. I had it as a checkbox. Like enlightenment, okay, now I'm truly going to be the person I want to be. I'm going to be always spiritual and loving. I'm going to greet everybody with love. Every situation that comes into my life, I am going to bless. I'm going to just know it's for my greatest good. I'm going to bless every person. I will never be thrown by anything. I will never doubt myself. No. <laughs> It's not true. I mean, and I don't, I'm not claiming I'm enlightened, but I've had enlightened moments for sure. You know, and I think the true masters obviously have, they've got something still that I don't. Um, but the thing is, we just, we treat it like it's a place of arrival from which we will never fall and never question. And and therefore, this is this exploration in this book is really pointing people to look at Exactly what you were saying, those dark nooks and crannies where in your in your heart of hearts, in your moments by yourself, in those darkened days when you're really, the things you haven't spoken to someone else, that's where you're waiting. And that's the places I'm, I, that's why 
I'm not giving you the five steps to never wait again, the cookie cutter approach. I know. (laughs) I know. It's not going to be that easy because it would just be a band-aid on top of what's really deeply there for you. So I'm asking you to look deeply into your soul and tell the the ugly truth that you felt this morning like giving up completely even though maybe your life is really looking great you wanted to quit it all and run or hide or stay in your house and stay in your pajamas and not go to that meeting and not have that conversation and not submit that proposal to an agent and not you know speak at that on that stage or not go back to school when you know when you just wanted to give up and hide from the world because it's too big and too scary that's where i'm speaking to saying it's okay i understand i've been there i still go there so have all these other people look for the teachers and gurus and masters that are willing to tell their darkness and not just say it's all light all the time and know that it's okay that you're still going to be this messy human being and you can still do amazingly great things and in fact with holding that vulnerability and that realness and that rawness of being human, you can do greater things because you're going to be so much more (laughs) appealing to people, real people. We want the real deal now. And I hate using the word authenticity because it's so overused right now. It's become a bumper sticker. You know, just all the politicians saying, I'm going to be transparent now. And you know, if anybody starts out saying, I'm going to be transparent now, you know, just (laughs) run because it's practiced. It's, you can tell when someone is telling you the truth. And, and look for those people, look for that evidence in the world that it's okay to be messy and then, and still go for it, still live your one wild precious life, still live your dreams. Right. In talking about going back to enlightenment and like one of the tools of enlightenment is that you are non-attached, you know, and, and you use a word that I just loved. You, you use a concept of Fluidity. Yes. So I I would love to have you describe that concept and what it means to you. Yeah. Well, non-attachment became something just, you know, such a word that was thrown around. I mean, literally, I was warned after the fire that we would hear the strangest things come out of people's mouths. And one of my friends, a group of guys came up to help with our first sifting through the ashes of our home, trying to find my husband's wedding ring, actually, having heard miracles before of rings emerging perfectly intact. And he left it in the house before his trip, and I didn't know. And and so we're trying to find that among other treasures and never ended up finding that. But we're standing in front of the pile of rubble that once was my home, and one of my friends mused out loud, it must be so freeing not to have any stuff. <laughs> and as I, you know, I, I shook my head. I actually didn't say anything. I was warned that this might happen. I thought about, yes, you know, it's this romanticized vision of non-attachment. If we just are not attached to things, and therefore, if we just didn't have anything, and the simple route to non-attachment is get rid of everything, and of course, a fire would do that perfectly for you. So, therefore, that should be one of the lessons I would get from the fire of like, okay, any of my suffering would be because I was attached to something. And so therefore, if I wanted to suffer less, just rid myself of non-attachment or rid myself of attachment rather. But the thing is, it became another checkbox. Checkbox, I'm now no longer attached. It became a way to measure myself of how, uh, it became a, an expectation for perfection. You know, And so I really found that that did not, non-attachment did not inspire me. 
It did not inspire me. I was attached to my house. I am attached to my dogs. My baby dog, Tigger, who's 95 pounds, who I let sleep with me, I am attached to that dog. Okay, if something, and I adore him and I love him and it's all the pure love too, but I'm attached to him. Something happens to that dog, I will suffer. Okay, I will feel the pain. If I was practicing non-attachment with my dog, would I feel less pain if something happened? Sure, but guess what? I, that's like that's just unrealistic. This is a strong <laughs> preference of yours. <laughs> this is a right. strong <laughs> preference. Yes. So I'm consciously choosing to be attached to certain things, and I get attached. That's human. We get attached, and sure, you know, play with that idea. If it works for you, use it. What I came up with is fluidity, and I came up with that through one of my amazing teachers after the fire, and just this concept of movement with something. It's like, okay, today I'm. Today, I'm a little less attached to that, and I can let go of that idea. Oh, today, I'm really holding on to that. This minute, I can release for a second. Nope, I'm taking it back, (laughs) you know? Like, just the movement through it, where it doesn't have to be this rigid. I am really against rigidity. And and. An arrival. An arrival. I'm a final destination. I'm finally there. Because we disappoint ourselves yes, we do. all the it, time. It breaks our hearts constantly. Because we're not there, most of us. We're just going to trip and fall and blubber and make mistakes. And it's going to go badly sometimes. And that is not arrival. And so therefore, of course, we're failures in life. And, you know, how about being fluid and just like human moment. Okay, back to what's my commitment? Human moment. Okay, now shine my light. Human moment. Okay, now be great with that person. Forgot, you know, swore at the driver. Okay, now forgive and and, and, and also congratulate ourselves when we have those moments that we're free. Yeah. And but not judge ourselves when we're not free. Yeah. You know, I mean, let's yeah. And we get upset that there's so much judgment in the media towards, you know, we absorb it. The media holds these standards and all that. But we have to look in our own shoes. You know, I was just following um, Elizabeth Gilbert. I love her writing. And She's selling her house, and she's um, posted something on Facebook about – it's a tour. She's taking us through a tour of her house and then actually offering to her fans, if you want to buy my house, here it is. And I was reading – this is on her fan page, and I was reading some of the, her fan comments. And most of them are beautiful and loving, and thank you so much, Elizabeth. And then some of them are so judgmental and harsh, like, thanks for rubbing it in our face that we can't afford your lifestyle, Elizabeth. Like, stuff like that. Like, Really? You're her fans. You know, you, you can't be with someone else's success and brilliance and that she had this moment where she wanted to share deeply in her life. She's a memoirist. That's what she does, you know. And watching the level of judgment that, and we get to see it on social media. We get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you don't want to be judged. Look at how you're judging. Stop being so judgmental of how other people are and not letting others fall out of rank a little bit. And we're just so like, Cut, 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 fall out of rank. Oh, judge, harsh, you know, this, that. And, you and know, we put these that. people on a pedestal that they we, never asked to be on and boom. Yes, or, yeah. you know, and we could say maybe they did, you know, people in the, in the you know, stars and all that are asking to a certain extent, but then we make that wrong, you know. Yeah. And yes, they want a little privacy sometimes and we make that wrong. Right. So I might guess, of course, is that they're judging themselves even more harshly than we're seeing them judge someone else. So we, we really have to start with ourselves looking at that person in the mirror and saying, you know, practicing acceptance, practicing radical self-acceptance, and then not not bringing it out, not not modeling that for our kids either. 
You know, don't model that for our children. You know, Kristen, uh, I want to speak a little bit about grief, and um, many of us are very familiar with the wonderful contribution that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross gave us about the stages of grief, and 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 you know, from denial to all, you know, I can't remember all the five stages. But in reading your book and now being with you, I understand when you talk about the messiness Mm -hmm. of being human and accepting our messiness and uh, is that um, that grieving process may not be so linear. It's It's helpful helpful to know those stages and know when they show up. But yeah. It's not stage one, two, no, three. Did it, how has it been for yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I think her, I don't remember the exact order, but anger, bargaining, denial, depression, acceptance. You know, so acceptance is obviously just that in itself, acceptance being the final, then we think we're supposed to move through that to acceptance and then maybe stay there. And I think, you know, I didn't, I have not read her book in a while um, and not around this time. Um did I read it? So I don't know. I'm, my guess is she did allow for some movement between the stages, but I think it's just we are so uncomfortable about grief in our society, and we really do have it. Like, how quickly can we get to acceptance? You know, the the race gun goes off, and let's get there fast, and let's get everybody else there fast. Let's clean them up, get them back on the court, you know, bruised knees and all, bruised broken hearts and all, get them back in the game, get them back productive, and we reward that. We don't reward people staying in the messiness and the and we're we're uncomfortable we're when uncomfortable. we're around people when yeah. they're staying in the messiness yeah. too long yeah. quote unquote yeah. yeah and I don't you know I think it's a fine line Come, having training as a therapist I am certainly not saying that someone who is in you know five years of deep mourning where they can barely like the will to go on is not present I'm not suggesting that that's a good idea that's a place and time for therapy and all that there's not a, a fit for everybody. It's all, it's unique from how we grew up to how deeply we love to what kind of person we are. And there just needs to be space in moving through that process. And again, some fluidity uh, part of it that we might feel acceptance uh, accepting certain things in one moment, and then, as you say, we take it back. Yeah. We take it back, and now we're not feeling it. So so that grief process is very individual, is what I hear you yes. saying. I'm here with Kristen Muller, and she is the author of What Are You Waiting For? Learn How to Rise to the Occasion of Your Life. And if you want to know more about her work, uh, what, what is your blog that people walkingthroughfire.com? Walking's through, easier to spell than Kristen Moeller. <laughs> right, it is. Walkingthroughfire.com is her uh, blog, and her website is kristenmuller.com. K R I S T E N M O E L L E R.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Kristen Muller, and she's the author of What Are You Waiting For? One chapter, you've spoken about your dogs and how much you love your dogs, and you you write about them. I, and I had to go on the internet and look up uh, what is it? They're called uh, what? Rhodesian Ridgebacks. Ro- Rhodesian Ridgebacks, and I had to go look at a picture of one so I could really see the dogs, and I love seeing that. Um and you have this marvelous chapter. I, I just loved it. It made me smile. Waiting to become the person my dog thinks I am. Mm. I would love to have you comment on on that, please. Uh, mm. You know, our dogs, the way they look at us and oh, oh <laughs> make me weep again. I know. I know. You know, I don't know what I would do without those animals. I mean, we don't have kids. We tried to be parents and lost a couple pregnancies and our dogs are definitely our babies and you know most dog people understand that whether or not they do have kids um so they are they are our babies and uh they just gosh i mean the the consistency that they are the the unconditional love that they are the the looks that they give us what matters to them you know being with us being going on walks i mean the same walk every day does not get boring to them dinner <laughs> Lunch, breakfast, you know, like, oh my gosh, dinner, <laughs> like breakfast. It's, it's a brand new experience uh-huh. I've never had before. Yeah, and the, the, the you know, the head, the Ridgebacks do these, well, a lot of dogs do the head tilts, you know, and they get, they have these wrinkled foreheads and, you know, and they're big, big dogs. And and then I'm, when I'm away from them, I'm always looking for dog fixes. Yesterday I was uh, walking around San Francisco. I got to actually spend some time with my high school cross-country coach, who lives in San Francisco, and he took me on a little tour, took me to lunch, and took me on a little tour of his neighborhood down by the marina on San Francisco. In San and Francisco. lots of dogs yes. are on the marina. And there was this one guy who had, he was on a bike, and his dog, I noticed, was off-leash, which never, my dogs could never be there. They're bad in that way. They would run. But this guy had this big kind of, um, I don't know what kind it was, but kind of a sheep dog of some type. And the dog is just following him. And then there was this big, huge field. And he got off his bike and he's letting the dog run around. And the dog is just doing laps, just so excited, doing circles and laps. And the guy's like bending down and doing the thing we do with dogs to encourage that. You know, and the, the dog's going back and more and more and more. And as we're passing by, I just, I turned and said to the man, I said, I love your dog. And I don't know what his accent was, but a pretty heavy accent. And he turned back to me and he said, she makes me happy. And I just, I was like, oh, you know, yes. and, uh, you know, it was just like this moment of the the pure joy. I think maybe that's when we're just closest to, to God, you know, it's like the pure joy of something so simple to take us back out of our busy, crazy lives to appreciate something small and appreciate a connection with an animal and, and just how much they love us and how much we love them and watching other people love their animals and you know, just that. I, that that phrase. They're like a happiness pill. And ha- they are a happiness pill. They I are. Mean, pharmaceuticals <laughs> cannot do anything no. better yeah. or even come close to this. So I say, stop and smell the roses, and stop and well, I, I think I had it in my first book. Maybe this one. Stop and smell the puppy breath. You know, and really, yeah. I'm kind of. Uh, there's so many dogs around San Francisco, and. It's apparently, there are a lot of um, French bulldogs, and I'm somewhat obsessed with French bulldogs right now. And you know, stopping and petting every single one of them, and seeing that cute, just mushed up face, and taking time out of you know, get off your phone for a minute, stop checking email, stop just being in your head, stop and and if you're not a dog person. 
by all means. I'm not telling you to go stop and pet every dog, although it might do you some good, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. But find those places to stop in life. And literally, I smell. I stopped and smelled so many rose bushes yesterday. Oh, that's awesome. I I have this um, idea, and maybe someone spoken on New Dimensions some years ago, but to to have these big, fluffy, purring cats in the war room in in the in in the, our nation's capital so that so that the war room and all these generals and admirals and everything are all sitting around with these cats on their laps. That's awesome. Know? I love it. Or then you know if that doesn't work then try a room full of puppies. Just puppies. release the puppies. Absolutely release the puppies or kittens or, or you know uh uh-huh. they really do, they do. bring us they in the do. moment, don't they? Do. They, they were what, they were put here for a damn fine reason, I must say. And and they've been our friends, especially dogs, mm-hmm. have for millennia. Yeah. I mean, they were thousands of years they yeah. have worked with humans. Mm-hmm. They are the angels they of are our angels. existence, mm-hmm. I think. Why, why is it, let me ask you this, at least it's my experience, why is it that... I have access to my tears and my grief much more easily when it's an animal who has passed yeah. on or hurt or something. I just go there like that, and 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 yet I, I it doesn't for, happen with people. It right. doesn't happen with people. Yeah. Do you, have you ever given that yeah. thought? I, you know, I don't know why exactly. I don't know why. Um, maybe because the vulnerability. I mean, it does absolutely break my heart. I can read about, I can hear about someone, you know, someone sharing that I lost my grandmother, you know, this happened or that happened. And I feel sad for them, but they say, I lost my dog of 11 years. And, you know, like, and I just, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is. And I, you could say the easy reason, like, oh, we can't be with the grief of losing another human being. I don't think that's what it is. I don't, it may be for some people, but I think what it is is there's something about animals that touch us so deeply and they come into our lives so briefly. And, you know, and then it, we open our hearts fully and completely to them, whereas we don't with humans as much. And, um, and they, they just feed us in that way. And I think that just that vulnerability of them and kind of knowing that we're, we're stewards for this life and, and then also knowing the cruelty that's out there to animals mm-hmm. and, you know, they're so precious. And and they're so vulnerable to our decisions. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I did actually recently. There was a there's a beagle rescue beagle rescue project that I recently did. I went on their website. They let them they rescue them from labs. And so I spot I gave I gave a hundred dollars or something like that to this project. And so now I'm I get their posts all the time. And but these so they there was this video of some a group of beagles having just recently been released. There were about six of them, and they had been all their lives in a lab and it was their first time ever experiencing grass and they they filmed them coming out of their cages and just touching their paws on the grass and you know kind of questioning and looking around yet the love for humans that was there even after it was humans that put them in that place you know and humans that you know treated them however they treated them but the fact they were just confined for their entire lives and now humans releasing them and the the just the instant love and acceptance that was there and forgiveness for humans was just so oh it's <laughs> magnificent i remember seeing that that video of christian the lion 
when he was uh, the two boys that in London raised him and <laughs> bought him at Harrods and, and from a, a cub, and but they released him mm-hmm. in Africa. And a year later, they decided wow. to go visit him, and the the, the reserve said, "Oh, you, you know, he's wild now. You, he would never, you know, recognize you, and you'd never find him." And but they went down, and they have this video of. Christian the lion just mm. patting down the rocks towards him and he jumps up. This is a year later, he hasn't seen them in a year. And this lion, huge, fully grown, is just hugging both of these guys and licking them and hugging them and licking them. And yeah. you're just crying and crying and crying. Yeah. And just, you know, these animals and their their ability to not hold on yeah, to that. exactly. Just the purity, just the purity. purity. And maybe they are our access to really having a full range of emotion. And, you know, I'm not saying that I would, you know, if I lost Tigger versus lost David, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my husband sometimes questions which one would be, which one I might mourn more. But <laughs> I think I would take it more seriously of losing my husband. But, oh, my gosh, they just, they, they do. They open our hearts in a way that not much else does. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about failure because you really talk about, like, failure is is a, a part of of our being successful. It's a maybe necessary part. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I think that part of, you know, and this is so out there in the, we've, we've heard this so many times, you know, but we don't live by it. We're just so afraid of making those mistakes. And just like we were talking about before, of falling slightly out of line, you know, we're trained to, from when we we're young, you know, in in school, whereas as kids, we're trained to behave and follow the protocol, follow the school's protocol, but follow the social protocol more even, more more so. And so just following that, and if we if we venture outside, if we do something that's a little off, we get so quickly judged by that and corrected that, you know, it kind of informs who we are going through life. And, you know, and then like we talked about already too, just the judgment in the media, you watch public figures be skewered and you know, and watch just normal people and this judgment we have for ourselves and the judgment we have for others. So, of course, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. <laughs> like, I mean, don't sign me up for that. I'm not going to knowingly go into something that could be so excruciatingly painful and be judged that harshly. And so, yeah, we want to, we want to play it safe. And the problem being, the problem is that we are, if we don't put ourselves out there, we're not going to have any of these miracles we want in our lives. You cannot become an author, a published author, without risking failure, without having some bad reviews, without having an editor put red slashes through your manuscript, without having some agents reject it. And, you know, without any of that, you can't do it. There's just, it's not possible. You quote Winston Churchill, and then you do a little twist on it. You say, he said, success is the ability to go from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Mm. You know, yes, but please, no loss of enthusiasm. Yes, temporary. Just let's let ourselves be human there. Kristen, I want to thank you so much for being on New Dimensions today. My pleasure. It has been so great to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you. I've been speaking with Kristen Muller, and she's the author of What Are You Waiting For? Learn How to Rise to the occasion of your life. And her website is kristenmuller.com. That's spelled K-R-I-S-T-E-N-M-O-E-L-L-E-R.com. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3506. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.